Section 24 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 7 Rome and the Temporal Power by Richard Garnett, Part 2. The French, meanwhile, advanced rapidly. They had entered Turin on September the 5th. By November 8th, they had reached Lucca almost without fighting. Italy was supposed to possess the most scientific generals of the age, but her soldiers were mercenaries who fought for booty as well as pay, and who thought it folly to slay an enemy who might be good for a rich ransom. An Italian battle had consequently become almost as bloodless as a review. The barbarity of the French, who actually strove to smite their antagonists hip and thigh, inspired the Italian warriors with nearly as much disgust as dismay. For the first time, perhaps in history, armies fled although and because they despised the enemy. The French, said Alexander, have conquered Italy con gesso, in allusion to the proceedings of the quartermaster who simply chalks off the chambers and stables he thinks fit to appropriate. The political disorganization was worse than the military, and evinced even more clearly the condition to which centuries of selfish intrigue had reduced Italy. Except the king of Naples, who could not abandon Alexander's cause without deserting his own, no Italian prince gave any material aid to the Pope. Piero de' Medici, the feeble and unpopular successor of the great Lorenzo, professed to be the ally of Rome and Naples. But ere the French had appeared before Florence, he made his submission in the hope of preserving his rule, which was nevertheless overthrown by a popular movement a fortnight afterwards, November the ninth. The Florentines acted partly under the inspiration of the Dominican Savonarola, who could hardly but perceive the fulfillment of his own prophecies in Charles' expedition, and might plead the precedent of Dante for the ruinous error of inviting a deliverer from beyond the Alps. Alexander showed as much resolution as could be expected, mustering troops, fortifying Rome, arresting cardinals of doubtful fidelity, and appealing to the rest to accompany him in case of his being compelled to withdraw. But here lay the essential weakness of his position. He could not withdraw. Some authority must exist at Rome to negotiate with Charles VIII upon his entry, now plainly inevitable. If the king did not find the lawful pope in possession, he might set up another. The need of a reformation of the church, in capita et membris, had never appeared more urgent, and although the irregularities of Alexander's life might be exaggerated by his enemies, they still afforded ground for doubting whether the caput at least was not beyond cure. While his election might be plausibly represented as invalid. If, on the other hand, Charles found Alexander in Rome, he might not only depose him but seize his person. The more violent the alarm into which Alexander was thrown, and so intense it was that the convention with the king of Naples, providing for his removal to Gaeta, was drawn up and approved, though never signed. The more credit he deserves for his perception 
that to await Charles would be the lesser peril of the two, and for his resolution in acting upon it. The lesson that for his own security the Pope must be a powerful temporal sovereign was no doubt fully impressed upon him. The still more important lesson that spiritual authority cannot exist without allegiance to the moral code was less easy of inculcation. It soon appeared that the Pope's policy was the right one for his present emergency. Charles VIII entered Rome on December 31st, and Alexander shut himself up in the castle of St. Angelo. He seemed at the king's mercy, but Charles preferred an accommodation. Men said that Alexander had bribed the French ministers. Probably he had, but corrupt or incorrupt, they could scarcely have advised Charles otherwise. The Pope could not be formally deposed, except through the instrumentality of a general council, which could not easily be convoked, and which, if convoked, would in all probability refuse to take action. Spain might be expected to take the side of the Spanish Pope, and there seemed no good reason for anticipating that other nations would take part with France. The imputations on Alexander's morality were not regarded very serious in so lax an age, and if, as a matter of fact, he had bought the papacy, the transaction could only be proved by the evidence of the sellers. If, on the other hand, Charles simply imprisoned the Pope without displacing him, he threw Christendom into anarchy and incurred universal reprobation. To attempt the regeneration of the Church would imperil other projects near to Charles' heart, and would be as wide a departure from the original purposes of his expedition as in the thirteenth century the capture of Constantinople had been from the aim of the Fourth Crusade. These considerations might well weigh with Charles' counsellors in advising an agreement with the Pope, although they must have known that conditions extorted by compulsion would bind no longer than compulsion endured they might indeed have obtained substantial security from the pope if they could have constrained him to yield the castle of st angelo but this he steadfastly refused cannons were twice pointed at the ramparts but history cannot say whether they were loaded and only knows that they were never fired it was at length agreed that the pope could yield kivita vecchia make his turkish captive over to the king and give up his son Cesare as a hostage. Nothing was said of the investiture of Naples, and although Charles afterwards urged this personally upon the Pope at an interview, Alexander, with surprising constancy, continued to refuse, expressing, however, a willingness to arbitrate upon the claims of the competitors. On January the 28th, 1495, Charles left Rome to march upon Naples, and two days afterwards was taught the value of diplomatic pledges by the escape of Cesare Borgia and by Alexander's refusal to surrender Civita Vecchia. A month afterwards, the much-coveted gem died, of poison, it was said, administered before his departure from Rome, but this is to attribute to poison more than it is capable of performing. Others professed to know that the prince had been shaved with a poisoned razor, but his death seems sufficiently accounted for by bronchitis and irregularity of living. 
Jem's death took place at Naples, which Charles had already entered as a conqueror. King Ferdinand's successor Alfonso, timorous as cruel, and oppressed by a consciousness of the popular hatred, had abdicated and fled to Sicily, leaving his innocent son Ferrante, or Ferrantino, to bear the brunt of invasion. The fickle people of Naples, who had had ample reason to detest the severity of the late king Ferrante's government, and were without sufficient intelligence to appreciate the wisdom and care for the public welfare which largely compensated it, hastened to acclaim Charles, and Ferrantino retired with touching dignity. Within two months, the Neapolitans became as weary of Charles as they had ever been of Ferrante, and a dangerous league was formed in Italy behind his back. Ludovico Sforza had come to perceive how great a fault he had committed in inviting the French king, for the claims of the Duke of Orleans to Milan were at least as substantial as Charles' pretensions to Naples. Maximilian and Ferdinand were no less perturbed at the rapidity of the French conquests. The Pope's sentiments were no secret, and even the cautious Venetians saw the necessity of interference. Between these five powers a league was concluded, March the 31st, 1495, whose object was veiled in generalities, but which clearly contemplated the expulsion of the French from Naples. The menace sufficed. On May the 20th, eight days after his solemn coronation as king of Naples, Charles quitted it, never to return. He did indeed leave a garrison, which was soon dislodged by Spanish troops sent from Sicily, aided by a popular rising, and the young king, so lately deserted by all, was welcomed back with delight. Charles, meanwhile, had proceeded towards Rome, professing an unreciprocated desire to confer with the Pope. Alexander withdrew first to Orvieto, then to Perugia. Charles, after a short stay in Rome, renewed his march northwards. On July the 5th, an indecisive engagement with the forces of the League at Fornovo, near Parma, ensured him a safe retreat, and he was glad to obtain even so much. Notwithstanding the inglorious termination of an expedition which had begun so brilliantly, it forms an epoch in the history of Italy and Europe. In revealing the weakness of Italy, the decay of her military spirit, the facelessness, and disunion of her princes and republics, it not only invited invasion, but provided Europe with a new battlefield. It set up an antagonism between France and Spain, and, while alluring both powers with visions of easy conquest, ruined the latter state by imposing sacrifices upon her to which she would in any case have been unequal, just at the time when her new acquisitions in America taxed her to the uttermost. It preserved Europe from France, by diverting the energies which, wisely exerted, would easily have subdued the low countries and the Rhine provinces. Most important of all, the condition of general unsettlement which it ushered in greatly promoted all movements tending to the emancipation of the human intellect. Great was the gain to the world in general, but it was bought by the devastation and enslavement of the most beautiful region of Europe. 
The close of the Charles expedition is also an eventful date in the history of Alexander VI. Up to this date, he appears the sport of circumstances, which he was henceforth in some manner to shape and control. It was to his credit not to have been seduced into conduct incompatible with his character of a good Italian. Some passages in his conduct might appear ambiguous. In the main, however, whether impelled by honorable or by selfish motives, he had acted as became a patriotic Italian prince, and he was the only Italian prince who had done so. He had been tortuous, perfidious, temporizing under stress of circumstances, yet in the main he had obeyed the first and great commandment to keep the foreigner out of Italy. Had he not afterwards, with what extenuations it will remain to inquire, adopted a different course, the judgment of history upon him as Italian statesman and sovereign must have been highly favorable. A new chapter of his reign was now about to open, pregnant with larger issues of good and ill. He meanwhile manifested his content with the past by causing the most striking episodes of the French invasion of Rome to be depicted in the castle of St. Angelo by the pencil of Finturicchio. Full of authentic portraits and costumes and lively representations of actual incidents, these pictures would have been one of the most interesting relics of the age. Their subjects have been preserved by the Pope's German interpreter, who saw them ere they were destroyed by the vandalism of a successor. Alexander's first step after his return to Rome was the obvious one of strengthening the castle of St. Angelo, which even before the French invasion he had connected with the Vatican by a covered way. His general policy presented no mark for censure. He appeared to aim sincerely at union among the Italian states, and not to be as yet estranged from the public interest by the passion for aggrandizing his family. His efforts to bring Florence into the national alliance were laudable, and, if Savonarola obstructed them, it must be owned that in him the preacher predominated over the patriot, and that his tragic fate was in some measure a retribution. This painful history, the right and wrong of which will be perpetually debated, does not, however, concern the history of the temporal power. Alexander's first important step towards the confirmation of the papal authority was the legitimate one of endeavoring to reduce the Orsini, who, though bound to himself by vassalage and to the king of Naples by relationship, had abandoned both during the French invasion. It was nevertheless of evil omen that the papal forces should be commanded by the eldest of Alexander's illegitimate children, the Duke of Gandia, dignified by the title of Gonfaloniere of the Church. The war began in October 1496, and notwithstanding a severe defeat in January 1497, Alexander was able to conclude a peace in February, by which he recovered Servetri and Anguillara, the fiefs whose alienation to the Orsini by Franceschetto, Kibo, had four years before been the beginning of trouble. He was now at liberty to attack Ostia, still in the occupation of the French, who menaced the food supplies of Rome. The fortress was reduced by Spanish troops, brought from Sicily by Gonzalo de Cordova. Their presence in Rome excited tumults, 
almost a solitary instance of any open expression of public discontent with Alexander's policy. Personally, indeed, he was never popular, but his efficiency as an administrator formed the brightest side of his character, and his care for the material interests of his subjects was exemplary. Years afterwards, those who had most detested the man wished back the ruler for his good government and the plenty of all things in his time. Unhappily for Alexander's repute, the glory which he might acquire as a just and able ruler was nothing in his eyes compared with the opportunities which his station afforded him for aggrandizing his family. Up to this time he had been content with the comparatively inoffensive measures of dignified matrimonial alliances and promotions in church and state, and had not sought to make his children territorial princes. But profiting by the death of King Ferrante of Naples, who was succeeded by his uncle Federico, he now revived papal claims to the territory of Benevento, and erected it into a duchy for the Duke of Gandia. This was to despoil the church, supposing her claims to have been well-founded. So complete, however, was Alexander's ascendancy over the sacred college, that only one cardinal dared to object. Simultaneously, Alexander pushed forward his schemes for the advancement of his daughter Lucretia by divorcing her from her husband Giovanni Sforza, lord of Pesaro, whose dignity now seemed unequal to the growing grandeur of the Borgia, and who, moreover, belonged to a family politically estranged from the Pope. A color of right was not wanting, the divorce which was decreed by the College of Cardinals after a professedly searching investigation, being grounded upon the alleged impotence of the husband. It is indeed noticeable that Lucretia, who bore children to both her subsequent husbands, bore none to Giovanni Sforza. The transaction also serves to discredit in some measure the charges brought against the Borgia of secret poisoning, which would have been more easily and conveniently employed than the disagreeable and scandalous method of a legal process. While Alexander seemed at the summit of success, the wrath or warning of heaven descended upon him. On the morning of June 15, 1497, the Duke of Gandia was missed from his palace. Soon afterwards his body, gushed with frightful wounds, was taken from the Tiber. Returning the night before from a banquet at the house of his mother, Vianosa, in the company of his brother the cardinal and other guests, he had separated himself from the party to ride with a masked person who had several times been observed in his company, and he was never again seen alive. After many had been named as the probable assassins, the popular voice at length proclaimed Cesare Borgia, who certainly profited by the deed, and most people thought this enough. History cannot convict on such a ground alone, and must rank this picturesque crime amongst her unsolved problems. After the first paroxysms of grief had subsided, Alexander made a public confession of penitence, which was probably at the time quite sincere. With all his dissimulation, he was a man of vehement emotions. A commission of cardinals was appointed to deliberate upon ecclesiastical reforms, but by the time when they reported 
Alexander's contrition had vanished. Their proposals, indeed, admirable in the abstract, were such as the Church was with difficulty induced to adopt at the Council of Trent, after having been scourged by the Reformation for half a century. Nothing could be more condemnable than the prohibition of the sale of spiritual offices, but it urgently raised the question how, in that case, was the Pope's government to be carried on. The Duke of Gandia's death is chiefly important on account of the character of his successor. There is nothing to prove the murdered prince anything but an ordinary patrician of his age. Cesare Borgia, however, was the complement of his father. Alexander, an indefatigable man of business, could never have wasted his time in inactivity. Yet it was conceivable that, had he been without near relations, he might have applied himself to developing the papal estate as he found it, and attempted no ambitious conquests beyond what was necessary for his own security. But Cesare seemed driven on by an indwelling demon, insatiable, implacable, uncontrollable. Experience itself could never have given him his father's wisdom and prudence, but his devouring energy was even more intense. From the time of his assumption of a leading part in affairs, the papal policy becomes distinctly one of conquest. The profession of care for the general weal of Italy, which had marked the first years of Alexander's pontificate, disappeared, and any foreign alliance was welcomed which seemed to ensure another principality for Cesare Borgia. How far this implied a permanent modification in the Pope's view, and how far it was a temporary plan to be discarded in its turn, is an interesting and a difficult question. But certain it is that from this time dates that deliberate creation of a strong temporal power as an auxiliary of the spiritual which the present chapter has to record. Alexander and Cesare might, or might not, intend that the petty principalities of the Romagna, successively subverted by Cesare, should eventually become an independent kingdom under his government. The only right he could claim to them was by assignment from the Pope, and the only condition on which the Pope could grant this was Cesare's obligation to continue his vassal and act as his lieutenant. It was a great gain to the Holy See to replace a number of unruly liegemen by a single capable deputy. But even this was but a transition stage in the process which must eventually bring these dependencies under the direct sway of Rome and constitute by their aggregation the considerable political entity which has until recently existed as a temporal power. Thirst for family aggrandizement was not the sole motive which impelled Alexander to ally himself with the foreigner. The task of maintaining order at his own doors had been too hard for him. During the earlier half of 1498, the Roman territory was distracted by the foids of the Colonna and Orsini, who pursued their strife in total disregard of the authority of the Pope. It was necessary to enlist support from some quarter, nor did Alexander turn to France until he had tried an Italian sovereign. Lucretia Borgia, emancipated from her real or nominal husband, espoused Alfonso di Biseglia, 
an illegitimate Sion of the House of Naples. But Alexander's ambition went much further, and he demanded the hand of the king's daughter for Cesare, then a cardinal, but soon to be released from his orders, which were in fact only sub-diaconal. This would have placed him in the direct line of the Neapolitan succession, and have effectually estranged the Pope from France and Spain. Every consideration of sentiment disinclined the king from a step recommended by every consideration of policy. Sentiment triumphed, and Naples was lost. Determined to secure an illustrious alliance for his son, Alexander now turned to France, where an event had occurred fraught with mischief to Italy. In April 1498, Charles VIII had died suddenly from the effects of an accident. His only son had died before him, and he was succeeded by Louis Twelfth, Duke of Orleans, a distant cousin who thought more of his own family claims on Milan than of the title which he had inherited to Naples. It happened also that he was in particular need of the good offices of the Pope, who alone could free him from a marriage forced upon him in his youth, which, as he declared, had never been consummated by him. This assertion was probably true, and Alexander could afford to act with fairness by referring the question to a commission, which decided in Louis XII's favor. Cesare Borgia, released from his orders, traveled to France at the head of a brilliant retinue, bringing with him to the king a decree of divorce from his former marriage and a dispensation to contract a new one with his predecessor's widow. He received in return the Duchy of Valentinos in Dauphiny. Alexander, who still clung to the Naples marriage project, expected the French king to use his influence to promote it, and the disappointment of his hopes seemed at one time likely to carry him back to the side of Spain. At last, however, May 1499, tidings came that Louis had found Cesare another royal bride in the person of Charlotte de Albert, a princess of the House of Navarre, and Alexander was now fully committed to the French policy, which aimed at nothing less than the subjugation of the Duchy of Milan. Venice was to be bribed by a share of the spoil, and Alexander was to be aided in subduing the petty despots who, nominally his vassals, tyrannized over the Romagna, and all but besieged the Pope himself in Rome. The undertaking would have been laudable, had not its chief motive been the exaltation of Cesare Borgia. The fate of Ludovico Sforza was soon decided. Unable to resist the combination of France and Venice, he fled into the Tyrol. Personally, who could inspire little sympathy, he had gained his sovereignty by usurpation, coupled, as was very widely believed on evidence which has, however, failed to convince history, with secret murder, and he had been the first to invite the French into Italy. It was nevertheless shocking, and of most inauspicious augury, to see an Italian prince, dispossessed by the foreigner, with the active aid of one of his own allies and the connivance of another, and deserted by all the rest, who had not, like Alexander, the excuse of deriving substantial advantage from their perfidy. The French occupied Milan in October 1499. In December, 
Cesare Borgia, at the head of troops raised by his father and Gascon soldiers and Swiss mercenaries, lent by France, commenced the operations which were to result in the constitution of the states of the Church as a European power. Theoretically, the Pope was already supreme over the territories of which, three centuries later, the French Revolution was to find him in possession. Practically, his authority was a mere shadow. With law and reason on their side, the popes had rarely been able to reduce their rebellious vassals. Thrice had this apparently been accomplished. By Cardinal Albornoz, as the legate of Innocent VI, in the middle of the 14th century, by Boniface IX, in the very midst of the Great Schism, and by Martin V, after its termination, all Martin's gains had been lost under Eugenius IV and Sixtus IV, with all his unscrupulous energy, had achieved nothing beyond carving out a principality for his own family. Alexander's projects went much further. He wished to crush all the vassal states and build out of them a kingdom for his son, with what ulterior aim is one of the problems of history. He must have known that no alienation of the papal title in Cesare's favor could be valid, or would be respected by his successor. He may, so rapidly was he filling the sacred college with Spanish cardinals, have looked forward to a successor who would consent to a partnership with Cesare, receiving military support on the one hand, and according spiritual countenance on the other. He may have looked still higher, and regarded the conquest of the Romagna as but a stepping-stone to the acquisition of the kingdom of Naples for his son, perhaps even to the expulsion of the foreigner, and the sway of the house of Borgia over a grateful and united Italy. Machiavelli evidently thought that Cesare Borgia was the one man from whom the deliverance of Italy might conceivably have come, and the bare possibility that his dark soul may have harbored so generous a project has always in a measure pleaded with Italians for the memory of the most ruthless and treacherous personality of his age. There was little generosity in Cesare's first movements, which were directed against a woman. Every petty sovereign in the Romagna had given the Pope ample pretext for intervention by withholding tribute or oppressing his subjects. It was natural, however, to begin with the princes of the House of Sforza, now brought low by the ruin of the chief among them. Cesare attacked Imola and Forli, which Sixtus had made the appanage of his nephew Girolamo Riario, and which, since the assassination of that detestable tyrant, had been governed by his widow, Caterina Sforza. The courageous spirit of this princess has gained her the good word of history, which she is far from deserving on any other ground. She was a feudal ruler of the worst type, and in her dominions and elsewhere in the Romagna, Cesare was regarded as an avenger commissioned by heaven to redress ages of oppression and wrong. The citadel of Forli surrendered on January the 12th, 1500. Caterina was sent to Rome, where she was honorably treated, and though suspected of complicity in an attempt to poison the Pope, was eventually allowed to retire to Florence. 
Cesare made a triumphal entry into Rome, but his projects received a temporary check from a revolution in Milan, where Ludovico Sforza recovered his dominions in February, only to lose them again with his liberty in April. The captive duke and his brother the cardinal were sent into France, and Cesare could resume his expedition against the other Romagnol vassals placed upon the Pope's blacklist as vicars in default, the lords of Pesaro, Rimini, Faenza, and Camerino. The summer of 1500, nevertheless, passed without further persecution of Cesare's enterprise, partly because of the difficulty of obtaining the consent of the Venetians to attack upon Faenza and Rimini, partly, perhaps, from the necessity of replenishing the treasury. It fitted well with the projects of the Borgia that 1500 was the year of jubilee. Rome was full of pilgrims, every one of whom made an offering, and the sale of indulgences was stimulated to double briskness. Money poured into the papal coffers, and thence into Cesare's. Religion got nothing except a gilded ceiling. Twelve new cardinals were created, who paid on the average 10,000 ducats each for their promotion, and the traffic in benefices attained heights of scandal, previously unknown. On the other hand, Alexander is not, like most of his immediate predecessors and successors, reproached with any excessive taxation of his people. The progress which the Turks were then making in the Moria favored his projects. He exerted himself to give the Venetians both naval and financial aid, and they, in return, not only withdrew their opposition to his undertakings, but enrolled him among their patricians. In October 1500, Cesare marched into the Romagna at the head of 10,000 men. The tyrants of Rimini and Pesaro fled before him. Faenza resisted for some time, but ultimately surrendered, and after a while its lord, the young Astore Manfredi, was found in the Tiber with a stone around his neck. Florence and Bologna trembled and sought to buy Cesare off with concessions. The sagacious Venetians, says a contemporary, looked on unmoved, for they knew that the duke's conquests were a fire of straw which would go out of itself. Cesare returned in triumph to Rome, January the 17th, 1501, and was received as though he had conquered the lands of the infidels. He arrived on the eve of one of the most important transactions in Italian history. The refusal of the king of Naples to give his daughter to Cesare had alienated the pope, and the murder of Lucrezia's Borgia's Neapolitan husband in August 1500, undoubtedly effected through Cesare's agency, has been looked upon as a deliberate prologue to a rupture with Naples. It was more probably the result of a private quarrel. The Pope seems to have honestly tried to protect his son-in-law, and the secret treaty between France and Spain, for the partition of Naples was not signed until November, or published until June 1501. An idle pretext was found in King Federigo's friendly relations with the Sultan, but the archives of European diplomacy register nothing more shameful than this compact, and of all the public acts of Alexander's pontificate, his sanction of it 
is the most disgraceful and indefensible. This sanction was probably reluctant, for he cannot have wished to see two formidable powers like France and Spain established upon his frontier, and he may have excused himself by the reflection that there was no help for it, and that he was securing all the compensation he could. Nothing could really compensate for the degradation of the spiritual power by its complicity in so infamous a transaction. But this was a consideration which did not strongly appeal to Alexander. It is only just to observe, however, that at bottom this humiliating action sprang from the great cause of humiliation which he was endeavouring to abolish, the Pope's weakness as a temporal sovereign. This could not be remedied without foreign alliances, and they could not be had unless he was prepared to meet his allies halfway. The conquest and partition of Naples were effected in a month, Spain taking Apulia and Calabria. The consideration for Alexander's support had been French countenance in the suppression of the turbulent Colonna and Savelli barons, who had disquieted the popes for centuries, but who were now compelled to yield their castles, a welcome token of the disappearance of the feudal age. The Pope's good humor was augmented by the success of his negotiations for the disposal of his daughter Lucretia, who was betrothed to Alfonso, son of the Duke of Ferrara, in September, and married with great pomp in the following January. The Ferrarese princes only consented through fear. They probably knew that Alexander had only been prevented from attacking them by the veto of Venice. They now obtained a receipt in full, and something more, for the Ferrarese tribute was remitted for three generations. The marriage proved happy. Lucretia, a kindly, accomplished and somewhat apathetic woman, took no more notice of her husband's gallantries than he took off the homage she received from Bembo and other men of letters. Nothing could be less like the real Lucretia than the Lucretia of the dramatists and romancers. The year 1502 beheld a further extension of Cesare's conquests. He appeared now at the head of a large army, divisions of which were commanded by the most celebrated Italian mercenary captains. In June, he conducted an expedition against Camerino, but turned aside to make a sudden and successful attack on Urbino, a mistake as well as a piece of perfidy, for the people of Urbino loved their duke, and Cesare's sway was not heartily accepted there as in the Romagna. It was otherwise with Camerino, which was acquired with little difficulty. Negotiations followed with Florence and the French king, who was then in Italy. But while Cesare was scheming to extend his influence over Florence, and to persuade France to help him to new conquests, he was placed in the most imminent danger by a conspiracy of his condottieri, who had entered into relations with the Orsini family at Rome. The plot was detected, and the incident seemed to have been closed by a reconciliation, which may have been sincere on the part of the mutinous condottieri. But Cesare's mind was manifested when, on December 31st, immediately after the capture of Sinigaglia, he seized the ringleaders and put them all to death. Embalmed in the prose of Machiavelli 
who was present in Cesare's camp as an envoy from Florence. This exploit has gone down to posterity as Cesare Borgia's masterpiece, matchless in craft and perfidy. But it also had more justification than the perpetrators of such actions can often urge. In Rome, Cardinal Orsini was arrested and sent to St. Angelo, where he soon expired. A vigorous campaign against the castles of the Orsini was set on foot, and they were almost as completely reduced as those of the Colonna had been. Alexander might, as he did, felicitate himself that he had succeeded where all his predecessors had failed. The temporal power had made prodigious strides in the last three years, but it was still a question whether its head was to be a pope or a secular prince. End of section 24